Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. And welcome everybody to another episode of Animals to the Max. I am your host, Corbin Maxey. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the show. You guys, I am just going to be honest. I was so impressed with this interview today. I, I mean, not my interview skills, but impressed with the guest. I'm like honestly speechless. I, you know, I've interviewed a lot of people. I've had, let's see, three seasons, over 120 something shows. And I'll tell you what, this has been one of my favorite interviews on the show. I have Mike Veal, and he is the president of the Global Conservation Force. And, you know, I think the reason why this interview resonated with me so much is this is somebody in the world who is seriously making a difference for animals and protecting their habitats. And Mike is a senior mammal keeper at the San Diego Zoo Safari Park, but he decided he wanted to extend his conservation work and not only work at the park, but try to make a bigger impact in the world. And so in 2014, he went to South Africa. He became an anti-poach ranger in the greater Kruger National Park and decided to found the Global Conservation Force. This guy does not just talk the talk, he walks the walk. He literally is on the ground fighting for animals. He is protecting animals. He it just his stories during this interview will just blow your mind. So I really enjoy talking to Mike. We cover a variety of different topics. In the beginning, we talk about him, you know, basically being a young conservationist at the age of 14 to working his way up to, you know, being a senior mammal keeper at the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. I know a lot of keepers or aspiring zookeepers listen to the show. This is a good one. He gives you a lot of insight. He gives you a lot of tips, things to do and things not to do if you are trying to become a keeper or to work in the animal care field. We then talk about his experience becoming an anti-poaching ranger, and it's intense. There's one portion of the interview where he talks about how he was stabbed by a poacher. I mean, my mouth just dropped. So he also talks about his experiences working with some of the most critically endangered animals on the planet. I'm talking about the northern white rhinos. He worked with two of the last remaining ones on earth and he talks about that experience and I just, oh my goodness, I just really enjoyed this interview and the fact that he is seriously making a difference. So I really encourage you to listen to this, share this with your friends, follow the Global Conservation Force on social media, donate to their organization. It's a nonprofit. I'll put the link in the show notes. So, oh, Mike, you were great. I'm so happy you came on the show. Before we get to this, as always, make sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to the podcast. Also, keep on reviewing the podcast. We're getting a few new ones, which is great. It helps get the show out there. And we are climbing on the ranks in the nature podcast around the world. We're actually the top in Malaysia, which is really interesting. I believe for kids and family, I, so that's awesome. Thank you, Malaysia. And so anyway, yeah, so people are listening to this all around the world. And when you write those reviews and you rate the show, it really gets it out there. And also make sure to, if you haven't already follow me on my social channels at Corbin Maxi, and that's on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok, especially if you want kind of more behind the scenes content regarding this week's interviews and, you know, future interviews. You get kind of that great backstage access. Also, if you are looking for something awesome to do during the week, make sure to check out my weekly show, Animal Nights Live. It's the late night show that I host on my Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok all at the same 
same time at 8 p.m. Mountain Standard Time or 10 p.m. Eastern Time. We typically will film that. We've been filming them on Friday nights. We're actually going to start trying to see if Thursday nights might be a better fit since people are kind of getting back to their work schedules. But it's a fantastic way to hang out with me during the night, meet some of my incredible animals, and interact with a community of people who love animals and, you know, develop friendships. And it's a really, really fun time. So once again, that's Animal Nights Live, and that is a weekly show. Make sure to check that out. That's also on Instagram and Facebook at Animal Nights Live. Okay, let's get to it. Let's get to the interview. Please welcome to the show Mike Veal, the president of the Global Conservation Force. I... I'm seriously so excited today for our guest on the show. We have Mike Veal, and he is the president of the Global Conservation Force. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. Hey, thank you so much. And by the way, we were actually introduced through a mutual friend, Lauren Ayers. Yeah, she's our uh, Pangolin Projects Coordinator. Yeah. And so she, she was on a few episodes back talking about pangolins and then she emailed me and said, Hey man, you have to get Mike on the show. And I was like, okay. And I literally had, (laughs) I just like, I mean, she's, she talked you up and I'm so happy you agreed to come on. Oh, absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, I mean, I, there's a brief bio on the global conservation force website and that's kind of where I did my research, but man, you have had an extensive career working with a variety of different animals and you've been what a conservationist since you were like 14 years old. Pretty much. Yeah. I've been pretty active in the game for a while. Um, I know a lot of people in the industry have, you know, always know what they wanted to do, but I, I knew what I wanted to do, and I actually kind of had a rough plan earlier on, so I, I feel lucky because I had some good mentors who helped set me on the right path. Oh, so what, can we go back, what did you originally want to do? Well, I actually, I'm doing it now. Um, the goal was, uh, I guess as a kid, I always wanted to work with animals, and I always wanted to save animals, and I'm doing both, uh, but as I got older and I was able to shape that a little bit further, I wanted to have multiple backgrounds of um, avenues of wildlife professional like care and uh, wildlife conservation under my belt to eventually create something bigger. When I was younger, I had no idea that it was going to end up being a nonprofit, but the catalyst that happened with the peak and poaching and how it started to rise, I put all of my backgrounds together and wildlife care and field conservation work and started to make it something bigger. Yeah. And you, and can we just go back? So you, did you grow up in California? I did. Yeah, I grew up here in uh, Southern California. Oh, how nice. And did you want to grow up and work at the San Diego Zoo? Was that like the dream gig for you? It was. As a kid, uh, I always was going to the Wild Animal Park. Now it's called the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. But there are pictures of me not even walking, visiting the park. You know, that was the place to always be. It was one of the inspirations for me as a young kid to further get further into the career and try to figure out the different ways I was going to tie it all together, I guess. Yeah. And so in your bio, it basically said that you were a senior mammal keeper at the San Diego Safari Park. That is an incredible position, but can we go back? Like, how did you land that position? Because there's a lot of young people, uh, you know, aspiring people who want to work in the zoo field. A lot of people email me and say, man, I'm just trying to get in and I keep on getting rejected. Like, can we talk about your journey to becoming the senior mammal keeper at the San Diego Safari Park? A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, what I always start with is I recommend people don't limit their scope of work. You know, if, if they can volunteer with reptiles or birds or 
uh, any kind of mammal species or group of species, go for it. And what happens is you start to meet more people, make more connections, get more offers, and doors appear that weren't there before. So that's exactly what I did. Um, luckily in San Diego and in California in general, you know, there's a big alive conservation culture and there's a lot of wildlife um, care opportunities. So as a kid, you know, it was mainly backyard stuff. I've been a reptile person my entire life. Really? Oh yeah. Big oh, time reptile. Dude. Me too, dude. Oh my God. Okay, great. I like you even better. This is great, Mike. <laughs> awesome. Well, I, you know, it, that's where it started really. Cause you know, I, in the mountains here and then the deserts, always catching different lizards and snakes and herping with my dad. And um, then it became more professional. I started volunteering for a couple of wildlife rehab facilities, got more experience with birds, different kinds of mammals. Um, so I think if I think back here, um, let me put it in order. I first was volunteering with small wildlife rescue here in town. And they're, they're called Project Wildlife. They're now part of the San Diego Humane Society. And I was working on small mammals and bats and doing the rehab stuff for that. And I also was working on the birds coming in. Well, at the same time, which worked really well, I was becoming a vet technician. And so I was able to partner the two and get a little further in the, I guess, work line instead of the volunteer line of helping mm -hmm. in the wildlife rehab. And along that time frame, too, because my, in my actual family upbringing, um, the family ran a music production company. I started helping nonprofits in the California area with fundraising because I knew how to throw larger events. And so I started working with Lions, Targets, and Bears and helping that rescue nonprofit. And so it keeps trickling on and there's more and more opportunities. And I start volunteering luckily with a position at the San Diego Zoo Safari Park at the time, the Wild Animal Park. And it's a position that didn't exist before and it, it doesn't exist now. It was a very odd timing. Um, basically, it's because of the way the union works, but it was, I had like a steady volunteer shift and multiple spots at the Wild Animal Park working primates and uh, cats areas and the baby rearing areas doing enrichment and helping with basic training and diet prep stuff. And so once the position actually opened, because uh, as you can imagine, positions don't always open at these facilities, I got lucky. And um, actually the supervisor who was over the area that I was volunteering in, he asked me, hey, do you, do you want to apply now? Because I was going through college at this point. And I said, you know, I really don't think it's the right time. And I, I was basically leaning on the fact that I needed to finish college because I was, didn't want to complicate it and he goes well we'll work with your schedule we can do a split weekend for you would you consider applying and i i wow. said yeah you must have been one heck of a volunteer i mean that is wow i was i was very lucky and i still you know i still see it that way and i i think the timing was right i had a lot of different experiences at that point some projects in the state park some projects in the national parks some private projects with reptile breeding and then all the other things I was doing that when I did apply, I had a lot of experience added to the fact that everybody at the park pretty much knew me already and my work ethic had been proven. So I got hired in. Well, now, so Mike, I, how, I'm sorry to interrupt, but how old were you? Were you like 22, 23-ish? 20. 20. Wow. Mm -hmm. I, was tw just, I, I got hired at 20 and my first work day, I, was, uh, I, was, I had just turned 21. 
like oh a week prior. Gosh. Now, how long were you volunteering to show them your work ethic before you were offered this job? Or I guess you applied for the job. Just shy of three years. Um, I was doing one or two eight hour shifts a week um, while going to school and working my other jobs. Okay, so you put the time in. I mean, I mean, I, I know you say you're lucky, but I mean, you, I mean, three years of you know hardcore volunteering. I mean, that that's great. Yeah, it, yeah, I definitely, yeah, I definitely put the time in, and and you know, I did do a lot of grunt projects, that's for sure. Um, which the keepers are very appreciative at the time. But yeah, that that did prove the work ethic, um, and I was, you know, it helped too that you know, working in multiple areas, working with multiple keepers, working with multiple lead keepers. So when the time comes to apply and the supervisor goes, hey, you've worked with Mike before. And, you know, the manager asks, hey, you've worked with Mike. What do you think? And they go, yeah, no, he's great. So, oh, man, that's really that's good advice, because if you're a volunteer, man, you can't go in there and start burning bridges. I mean, that would be a horrible thing to do. Yeah. And I have to say, unfortunately, some people do that. People do come into the industry like they deserve the job. And that's Mm. one of the probably the most off putting things an intern or a volunteer can do because I think they're forgetting or they're so excited to go for the job that maybe they don't realize that the person that they're working with spent five to 10 years to get to that spot, maybe longer. And you're almost insulting the person you're working with by, I guess, inadvertently being eager and cocky with the situation. Oh, I know exactly what you mean. I know exactly what you mean. I mean, we, um, yeah, I just, yeah, we've, and I don't want to name names, but I, I do a bunch of stuff like on the Today Show and I work with many accredited zoos. And, you know, when you work with the zoo, sometimes you do work with some handlers who, I don't, I don't want to say they're difficult to work with, but almost feel more entitled. And it's just like, man, it's just, you know, those aren't your favorite people to work with. Yeah. And, you know, that at the end of the day, you know, work-life balance and how you, you guess, I guess how you drive on the job it really matters because if, if unfortunately you get a bad name, the industry is pretty small. And I, you know, after a couple of burnt bridges, people are not even going to give you a chance. So it's an important thing to keep in mind at the start. You know, everybody's got a story to tell. And even some of the senior keepers who maybe they're not as impressive at first because they're not doing the flashy projects. Maybe it's because they already did it. Maybe they're the first one to do it. You know, uh, those are the people you need to sit down and listen to their story and understand how they live the industry because they might have been on the cutting edge of something that literally was the first for all of us that's now taken for granted. So there's a lot of interesting crossovers with interns and volunteers and um, best advice is just just listen, just listen and and learn and then you'll your opportunities will continue to come. That's great advice. And the worst thing you could do, what would you think the worst thing you could do being a volunteer? Uh, picking fights with keepers. It actually happens. <laughs> Not like phys- physical fights, but like picking arguments and that kind of stuff. You know, uh, I sometimes you see new people coming in the industry and they don't even have the job and they're they're already trying to like undermine a keeper or they're trying to like, I don't know, create some project, but they don't have any standing in it. And they don't even ask the person who's in charge of that area. And, you know, basically come into the industry with respect and you'll get respect. But if you are very disrespectful, um, people are going to close doors. I, I love that. I also want to add something. I, I think my piece of advice, maybe don't come in and be a complete know-it-all. Would you kind of agree? hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. 
hundred <laughs> percent. Okay. I just, yeah, I've anyway. Yep. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for that insight. So you work your way up to being the senior mammal keeper at the San Diego zoo safari park. And you get to work with two of the rarest animals on earth. Can we talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So in the journey, like I said, I worked another thing that I was lucky with at the facility is, um, I haven't just worked in one string. Um, the unique thing about the wild animal park is you rotate quite a bit. So, and, and not like six months or whatnot, but you rotate on average, maybe every two or three years. So you have enough time to grasp an area and you can rotate to a new group of species. Now, not everybody does that, but I did do that. And also because I just happened to train for areas when people got sick and injured, I was relief for several spots. So across the time frame, I've worked with tigers and I've worked with, um, you know, primates and I've worked with Asian hoofstock and I've worked with African hoofstock. But my heart and soul has always been in rhinos. And luckily at the safari park, we've had, we had a lot, we, we, we had a lot of rhinos still, they still do. Um, but the species of rhinos that we had was a big span, including the Northern white rhinos. So we had greater one horn breeding groups. We have white rhino breeding groups. We have black rhino breeding. And then we had, we had the two Northern white rhinos. And when I started working with them, they were older in their age at that time. Like they they, I think I started working with them when they were about 39, Wow! If I, if I remember correctly. And I'd worked with them before that as a relief in like helping in that area while somebody was out. But when I came back and I actually was full-time staffed in that area, I was super excited. So I had, in my own description, a, a head start on the, I guess, extinction crisis that everybody caught up to because... I, every day at work, was literally staring extinction in the face because when I started working with the Northern White Rhinos, I think the, f- the first year there were still 16 and it was questioned if there were, you know, air quotes, more in the wild. However, it was very illogical to think that that was actually a possibility based on the war-torn regions and everything that was going on. And then and I was like, continue to work with them and the timeline went on the poaching crisis ramped up it was known okay there's only nine now there's only eight now there's seven and so on you know as it continued and um i that was a catalyst for me because i had planned to start a nonprofit, but i wanted to wait longer because i was hoping to have more of a decade before moving on to the next step you know, but it became more of an urgency thing. And working with the Northern White Rhinos was very special because you, you, you get to show someone something so special, but also I guess the urgency is there and people understand it a lot better when it's an iconic species, unfortunately. You know, I love, you know, poison arrow frogs and all the little guys, all the tiny things, but I can't get someone from the general public to care about the poison arrow frog uh, but for some reason, I can get them to care about the elephant and the rhino every time. But what that became and what we do at GCF and the tie-in here is we use the protection efforts of these larger animals to be the umbrella protection species. Because I can I could yell myself blue in the face about the tiny things I care about in those environments where these rhinos are from. 
But if I relate to the public as something that they can relate to, and then they come back and they support it, I can protect everything from the rhinos to the bottom. And that was something that was interesting with the first layer of working with the northern white rhinos. When I first started talking about it, nobody knew that rhinos were in trouble. They always said, oh, yeah, elephants and ivory. Mm. And so it was a, that was a weird thing to hit in the beginning. So, yeah, it, it, they were a huge part of why GCF is now what it is. Now, and Mike, I just, I just want to just ask you a question here because there are some people who are really unfamiliar with all the rhino species. Where are the the northern white rhinos found? I mean, like northern Africa, I'm assuming, or west Africa? Where are we? I mean, where are we talking, I guess? So if you just kind of look at the center belt okay. of, I'm looking. of the African continent, okay. that pretty much is their their previous habitat range, with some of the last ones being found in Sudan and oh. the DRC and the Congo. And rumors of, you know, populations here and there that disappeared. Um, they are a subspecies of the white rhino. Uh, the southern and the northern are subspecies of each other, I should say. The southern species was declared separate because of the the some of the geographic dif- difference distances and differences of reach with the populations. Now there's a lot of arguments and DNA studies going on and people trying to be groupers and splitters with the species. But I can say personally from working with Southern whites, Northern whites, black rhino, greater one horn rhino, and seeing Javan and seeing Sumatran rhino, that each one of them is very different, but very similar. And white, the northern white rhinos, the ones that I worked with, compared to the white, the southern white rhinos, were actually a little shorter in, in their stature, and they had furrier ears. And that was something noted by a lot of people in the field. Mm-hmm. So it was a, an interesting thing where maybe that was an adaptation to the difference in weather and climate and conditions like forest elephants and savanna elephants. Interesting. How were their how were their temperaments? I mean, I'm looking at this photo of you on your Skype profile of you next to a rhino, so I don't <laughs> like it. They're, so you know, I'll, I'll I'll preface this with not all not all individuals are the same. Yep. However, uh, for the most part, white rhinos can be very docile and they can be very slow and sweet. But I do know some that broke that tide that are you know pretty spicy individuals. Surly, always causing trouble. Um, however, the northern white rhinos that I worked with, uh, Nola and Angalifu, or Angie, as we called them, were both very sweet and both very gentle, which made them more lovable because they were so special to the keepers because we did work on foot next to them in these large mixed species habitats. And so, for example, when I worked with Angie, he was in a separate area than Nola, <laughs> Um, mainly because he wasn't interested in breeding Nola um, and he wasn't interested in, you know, we weren't going to put him with a a Southern white female group and he's an old male. So we're not going to introduce him to any young white runner males uh, that could cause problems. So he's kind of in his retirement zone. And I used to come in every morning and spend a couple hours with him and we'd walk uh, the exhibit and there was nothing that made him walk with me, but we would just walk. And I would feed him his, his daily meds uh, twice a day. And he had Cosequin and conjoitin. And uh, we, you know, I spent several hours with him every day. And he, 
he looked forward to it. I could tell because every day he, he would be laying down most of the day and we saw me he'd get up and I'd give him scratches behind the ears and I'd give him his belly and back rub and I'd give him a bath and a mud, you know, I'd add mud to his back and then we'd go for the morning and afternoon walk. And the same thing with Nola. Nola was breakfast in bed every morning, as we called it. Do you, were there moments where you pinched yourself and you're literally walking around with a rhino and you're getting paid to do this? <laughs> yeah, there were quite a few moments. In fact, you know, comically, I've, I've always kind of been the person who uh, either shies away from the photos or doesn't get in the photos myself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I kind of kick myself for, for that with them. I had a lot of very unique and cool moments with them that I should have just asked somebody to take a picture. And I do have my handful of photos and whatnot with them, but there were a lot of times where I'd pinch myself and be like, dang, you know, this is a very special moment in my life. And um, I definitely appreciated every moment of it. Wow. And so they were, so they were older and just to kind of tie back, was it two years ago we lost the last male Sudan, is that correct? Who went back to Kenya? Am I jumping too far ahead? No, you're correct. Um, yeah, Sudan passed away at Old Pajeta in Kenya. Okay. And that was old age related. I believe he was 43. Okay. Um, and yeah, that is correct. So there's the two females left that are still at Old Pajeta. So you did, did Angie, the male you worked with, and you said Nala, did they pass away of old age? They the... did. Okay. Yes. Um, and, <laughs> Nola, just like uh, New Orleans, I guess the Nola. So N-O-L-A and, and Angie. But um, yeah, okay. both of them passed away from uh, old age complications. Um, basically, very ripe age. Angie was 43. Nola was 44. I got to I embarrassingly would have to look back up because uh um, the dates specifically, there's also arguments. This is kind of funny too. There's, there are arguments about their actual birth, date, date of birth because no one actually was sure specifically when they were born. Huh. Um, cause the rescue, the rescues of the Northern rhinos and their own were some big conservation stories about people like trying to prevent them from going extinct years before they got wiped out. So Nola was approximately a year Plus, when she came into, um, I think it was in Europe when she came, where she moved to uh, originally. So, but yeah. Wow. And okay, that yeah. Did you guys ever try to get any of Angie's like semen at all? For like, I'm just trying. Like, were there steps were you guys trying to take to maybe possibly? uh, You know, breed them. I know you said they were old, but I know this was like a critically endangered animal. Yeah, so people, uh, the senior keepers ahead of me had uh, all tried multiple different things um, with getting them to, like, so Angie was introduced to several other females, so there mm-hmm. several other northern white females, mm-hmm. and he never bred them. And Nola was um, described as uh, infertile or uh, unable to carry a calf uh, because of, what they suspected was going on with some of the internal organs and basically in, in rhinos, if they don't breed consistently, their whole reproduction system goes dormant. So after several years, and we're talking like 20 years, 25 years back um, of no breeding, um, they assumed that it wasn't going to work. doesn't mean they, they did try to introduce them and, 
Angie never showed any interest. However, under myself, uh, we there was there were attempts, um, and there were samples collected, and uh, it was under anesthesia procedures. And uh, at the same time, when they passed away, they did harvest that um, genetic material from both Angie and Nola. And that's a, and that's still in the in the San Diego Zoo's frozen zoo. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's. Uh, I believe they have 12 individuals with their specimens frozen. Wow. Okay. And can we talk really quick for anyone who's never been to the San Diego Zoo Safari Park? I've been. It's amazing. But can we talk a little bit about how it's different from a lot of other zoological parks? Yeah. Um, so the the village center um, of the park is described as the village, uh, mainly because it has that more traditional feel. You're walking through a themed zone, and there's some smaller habitats. Um, but what the park's really known for is the large, open, mixed-species habitats. And when I say large, I'm talking close to 100 acres, several of these zones. Lots of different breeding species, many of them endangered, um, and lots of population management programs with uh, multiple facilities. And so when you come to the park... It, it does feel like an immersive experience um, in some of the zones where you're, you're like, you're actually seeing giraffe right next to the rhino and there's water buck and there's Cape Buffalo and, um, and Paula, and they might be in herd numbers of 20, 30 um, next to, you know, a crash of maybe eight to 10 rhinos. I love how you use crash the group name. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so I, I just want to plug the animal park. I haven't been since I think 2008, my last time, but it is, I mean, if you can't afford to go on a safari or you want a safari experience and you're here in the States, I would suggest making the trip because it is such an amazing experience. And I did something. I got to feed the, one of the greater, uh, greater one horn rhinos during one of their, you know, behind the scenes tours from a vehicle. It was phenomenal. It was like one of my best wildlife encounters I've ever had. Yeah. There's some cool stuff. It's, it's, it's pretty fun. Yeah. Anyway. So just plugging that there. Okay. So you work with two of the most critically endangered mammals in the world. In 2014, you decided to take action, and you go to South Africa to Greater Kruger National Park? That's correct. Yeah, so with the Nolan Angie story, I wanted to get the first phase of what I felt like I needed to get done completed. And so I was working as a ranger after hours while working um, at the safari park, and I was working at a local lake reserve here in California. And so, but I wanted to get more formal training obviously for anti-poaching. And so throughout 2013, I was training and then I sold all my stuff, moved out of my place, left for Africa. And then in the beginning of 2014, I graduated in the greater Kruger National Park, um, which is the the zones connected to the Kruger Park itself, you know, all the zones that connect. And I graduated as an anti-poaching ranger and was then part of the for this area, the first specialized rhino protection unit. And this unit became a joint operations team, um, which is a fancy word for collaboration team with multiple bodies of anti-poaching units and law enforcement and different backgrounds. So I didn't just patrol in the bush and, you know, wait for things to happen. Um, There's this weird misconception with anti-poaching rangers and, where are they and how do they work? 
And one of the biggest ones is like, you know, these are massive areas that people are covering and there's not a lot of, there are not a lot of rangers in the ratio. However, an effective ranger unit um, is at base level, very used to the bush, can track and is very physically fit. So that means that when they're walking through this massive area, they're going to notice that this twig on this tree is broken and below it, there's a partial footprint, which means that someone who's not supposed to be there has crossed through the reserve and they're going to detect that or they're going to hear the alarm call of a bird or a primate or they're going to notice the elephants are extra pissy. And so when I went through the training, it was very very rough paramilitary style um you know shave my head and everything kind of thing and lost a ton of weight and put through the ringer but what i came out as was effectively a regional specialist in combat tracking and i was fortunate to be taught by not only former uh special operations military members from africa who had fought in the region war the bush war Mm-hmm. But I was also taught by guys who were there at the beginning and the middle of the arc of the biggest poaching scourge we have seen yet. And so that means that in one area, it's the difference between being, you know, the sheriff in the middle of uh, the desert in Arizona versus being on the LAPD. You're going to see a lot more. And so I got trained by those guys who watched the curve grow and had all the background and experience. So when I hit the ground running, I was very lucky that I had a lot of really good colleagues and collaborators from the other units that we were all a very effective unit. So we made a lot of arrests. We did, unfortunately, did a lot of crime scenes. And I got a lot of experience on a lot of different things. And what I realized, even in the first couple months of being full active duty, there were parts all across the world and parts, uh, parts all across the continent who hadn't hit that fire yet, so they didn't know what was coming. Mm. So they weren't ready for it, mm-hmm. and they weren't even trained for it. So, okay, and I just, I have so much respect for you because it's just like, so you leave this safari park for good, correct? I, yeah, I, I did come back. I did come back. Okay. I took, yeah, I took an extended leave of absence. Okay, and you- So, unpaid. You, unpaid, and you sell everything, and you move to Africa mm-hmm. to dedicate your life- and help with this anti-poaching. Yep. I, wow. I mean, there, I mean, you really, wow. Okay. And was it like hard at first when you come across these scenes? Cause I don't know. I've never, I've been to Africa a few times. I've never been to a scene like a crime scene where an animal has been poached. Was that difficult? Uh, yeah, it, and it, unfortunately it, it never has gotten easier to see, um, you know, every, everybody asks this, and I think it is a good question, but, you know, the people who are working on the, f- the very front line, um, a lot of them are working for the passion of it, just like we do in the you know, zookeeping world. So when you see this for the first time, you literally are in shock. And you've trained for it, and you know what it's going to be like. You've probably seen pictures. But when you're there, and you haven't slept for two or three days, and one of your friends is injured because he got into a firefight with a poacher and the poachers got away because this, that, and the other, or, you know, some just got let out for bail and you're standing at this, this crime scene and it's 105 degrees. It's hot. 
humid, it smells terrible, and you're staring at the face of this poor animal. And what's a little more tormenting is once you've been taught the crime scene investigation is you know how it happened and you know what order it happened in. And as a tracker, it's like reliving the steps as you hit the scene because as a tracker, you're visualizing how that person's moving and what they did so you can find the evidence and sweep. So you're unfortunately reliving that entire experience. And it is really hard and it, it never gets easier and it's, it's very difficult to see. Is it, so I, do you have compassion for the poachers? And I know that sounds like a weird question, but I know that some people say, Hey, listen, they're just trying to support their families that it's not the poachers. We should be, you know, it's not the, like the little men we should be mad at. We should be mad at the big suppliers. Does that make sense? Yeah, no. And actually that is a really good question. So poachers get lumped in this big category under one category. Okay. And there, there actually are several different types of poachers and there are several different categories of poaching operations. So, I have absolute compassion for the kids who are poaching to feed themselves because they're an orphan uh, or the man of the family or the woman of the family who's trying to snag a bird or even a, a you know a larger population-based species like an impala or mm. kudu. They're not going to make those animals go extinct, but they, they themselves are starving. And we don't, we don't approach those poachers the same way we do an elephant or a rhino poacher at the same time, you know, those, a lot of times what can happen and we ourselves have actually been able to accomplish this at Gulf Conservation Force is you can provide training and get a job for these guys so that they can then protect the wildlife. Because a lot of the bush poachers that are on the lower levels, they're just trying to survive. And the biggest win is turning them into rangers. And they are absolutely the proudest rangers there are. The harder thing is, is when you get into the th- the poachers that are actual criminals that took on rhino poaching as another side gig, they come from a violent background. They come from an infrastructure of organized crime. And those players I don't have compassion for, with the exception for the people who've been coerced into the situation. Um, and it is hard because I've come across every layer of these guys now from transnational syndicate to regional kingpin, to the guy who pulled the trigger, to the guy who, um, got coerced in to the, you know, the guy who's trying to just snag one animal and, you know, you, you, you hit every situation differently. Yeah, I don't. I can't imagine it would get any easier. I I interviewed, um, I think during season one, author Carl Safina. He has an excellent book called Beyond Words. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's a really really good book. And he he went to Africa along with um to um Amboseli National Park, and he witnessed the just the poaching crisis with Dr. Cynthia Moss, and he oh, said yeah. he said he will never be the same again. It took like ever. Like it just, he was there for a couple months and he just, it, he said it just changed him forever. Yeah, I, I could say it did the same to me. I still have my sense of humor and I still like to play practical jokes, but um, I, I do unfortunately still uh, have to deal with the, the things I've seen. And uh, I still am active as a ranger and I train anti-poaching units and I still do all that stuff as for the nonprofit. So I still hit these gruesome sites and I, 
I've been stabbed by poachers. I've been shot at by poachers. I've arrested poachers. I've been in courthouses with poachers. I've, you know, I've gone through the gambit and I, <laughs> you know, there's some guys that you're like, you know, you, you, you can see it right away on their face. Like this poor dude is just trying to feed his family. And then there's the other dude who literally, when you erase, or sorry, when you arrest him and you ask for his ID, he's talking about how he's going to murder you and he's going to kill you in your sleep and he's spitting at you. And he's just saying, just wait till I buy you get to this road stop and my corrupt friend does this. And you know, that there's like two worlds, two separate worlds in it. And, um, you know, once you start working in that level of, I guess when you deal with that level of crime, uh, your your personality definitely does adapt and change just out of pure survival. Dear God, you've been stabbed? Yeah, yeah. Um, it was a glancing, I should say not a full stab, it was a glancing blow, but um, I disarmed a poacher who had a, um, he was using a wood saw to cut up ivory pieces, and uh, he swung it on me like a machete, and I disarmed him. Oh my cut- God. I, yeah, he cut cut the side of my arm, but it it's, didn't even require stitches. It was, it was merely a flesh wound. Yeah, but still, <laughs> I mean, have you always been good at defending yourself? Or how long did it take you to, I mean, the last fight I had, well, actually, I was probably 21 years old. But I mean, like, <laughs> the last, like. Hey, good for you, though. Good. I know why. Well, okay, that's a podcast for a different day. Uh, but I was going to say that, I mean, have you always been like a natural bone fighter? Or how long did it did it take a lot of training to get to this point where you're disarming poachers? Yeah. And I, you know, it, it, I don't want it to come off sounding like too easy or cavalier to say that either. Like yeah. it was, it was a proper brawl and it was, you know, I did have to make a split time decision. And a lot of times you don't do that, <laughs> but it was time and place kind of thing. But yes, to answer your question, um, I grew up, uh, my dad, put us in multiple different fighting sports growing up me and my brothers so we were always brawling around the house and mm. uh one of my mom's strategies was to put us in a different martial art or each one of us was in a different martial art so not one of us was better at it than the other from on it you know me versus my brothers uh, which didn't quite work but yes i've been training my entire life uh primarily in muay thai krav maga and uh folk style wrestling and brazilian jiu-jitsu so wow okay so you like i didn't make it past the purple belt and uh, maybe the camel one back in, <laughs> in karate <laughs> <laughs> well i i can tell you i didn't get past yellow belt and karate i didn't really like karate oh i so. didn't either i hated it i mean no offense to people who love it i just i couldn't my mind was elsewhere with the karate thing. yeah i was yeah i was too distracted yeah i, I yeah i luckily that was a thing i've always been a high adventure sport style person out, outdoors with, you know, backpacking and surfing. But at the same time, I've always been very, uh, uh, skill set driven for things like survival techniques. And I was a scout and, uh, the, you know, the mixed martial arts background and I was a competition shooter for years. Um, so a lot of the stuff of my upbringing really kind of came together and all tied into one really tight, fit for being an anti-pushing ranger because it's not a military infrastructure where you have planes and helicopters and all sorts of vehicles it's more survival tactics and reconnaissance and you know make a plan and adapt and you're getting chased by animals and you know you never know what's going to happen but yeah i i 
I definitely in that situation, what happened was I was the first person to arrive to the one person when my backup, who was supposed to be on my right flank, actually tripped because I was running through the bush. I'm not super tall. So I got there first and my colleague, who was six foot plus, couldn't get there as fast, tripped. He had the rifle and I had actually not been carrying a rifle at that time. He was supposed to be my right flank and the left flank was supposed to do what's called like a dog tail and loop around. Mm -hmm. So they were going to come in at a different angle. Well, here I am. I'm standing with this dude like, you know, we're talking fraction of a second. And I look to my right. There's no one there. And I look to my left and there's no one there. And so I just just did exactly fell back on the training and um, was able to disarm the dude. Now, seconds before that, I had just yelled at one of the guys in the unit to stand down on our group because I saw on one of what I, the other poachers ahead of us appeared to be an AK 47. So, Oh my God. But that guy booked it. And so there was this weird pause of like that guy's running and he's not visible because of how thick the bushes. And then the guy who I got to, you know, he wasn't carrying a rifle yet. There's, you know, there's all these factors. So yeah, it was a little, a little crazy. Mike, uh, have you ever been like, I'm done, like, I, I, I give up, I'm not, I'm I'm done risking my life? Have you ever wanted to give up? Yes, I have. I have. Um, I've been tired. Um, I've been personally defeated where I felt like there's just too much going on. And I've been on flights where, uh, you know, I just, the world kind of closed back in on me. And I'm like, what the hell am I doing, you know? That could have been the last time, you know, there, there, I've had those moments for sure. Um, and I arguably have to say now, like I do remove myself from those situations as much as I do want to do that. Uh, cause I don't benefit the nonprofit if I get myself <laughs> killed, not killed. Yeah. And there are ways to approach it better and, you know, more strategically, but some of the, you know, like if you're embedded in a unit that's highly trained and everybody's on the same page, it's not, it is dangerous, but it's not as dangerous as if you're training a bunch of guys in a very remote area and you're trying to catch them up to speed and you end up making an arrest and it's kind of like a rodeo circus. You don't know what's going to happen. And <laughs> that was kind of what happened with the, the dude who ended up, I ended up disarming the uh, blade from and, you know, uh, but yeah, I've, I definitely have been on flights back home going like, this is, that was so stupid. Like, what was I thinking? Yeah, I have you ever? I mean, if a poacher's shooting at you, are you allowed to kill him, shoot and kill him? It depends on the country, but most of the rules of engagement in all of the primary countries that we talk about, rules of engagement are you have to be fired upon or your life has to be in imminent danger from a firearm to respond with a firearm, much like you would any police force. And, and in fact, a lot of the times these days, I don't carry a rifle because either the locale where i'm at it's too complicated or it's not legal or it's too much of an incident if something happens with it so i will stay back or i'll do specific things in the team um but yeah the you definitely it's not so cut and dry as you you know as social media makes it seem where you know uh the the rangers just shot a poacher you know a lot of times what happens too is unfortunately when there's a firefight and let's say the Rangers are hundred percent in the right because 
the poacher did pick up the weapon and pulled the trigger or shot at them before they even saw him and they responded and they hit him, the Rangers are going to be charged charged with a murder. It's going to open up a murder trial first and they have to prove their innocence. And that's a hard thing for a lot of Rangers because here they are doing their job, doing what they think they're supposed to be doing. And then they end up in a courthouse and they're being treated like a criminal and they may have been legitimately defending their life. And, to date, most there's only been a handful of Rangers who've actually been, um, I guess, slapped on the wrist because all of the due process came through that they were in the right. Um, but, you know, that is a consequence of the new world of conservation or the current world of conservation. A lot of people who are in conservation didn't get into conservation to kill people. And in fact, if that's what some of these gung-ho people are trying to do, that's the wrong approach. That doesn't solve anything a lot of these people literally came into the industry to protect wildlife. And that, to them, doesn't include shooting people. And uh, that's a really important note to take yeah. with a lot of these posts. You know, yeah, we do celebrate, and I say we, you know, people who see the deaths of a poacher because, you know, it's like plus one for the animals. But oh, yeah. the story behind it is so complicated. And, you know, there's a, there's, there's a lot of there's so many complicated factors involved and um yeah so it's it's not just as easy as pull the trigger uh, there are places like Kazaringa national park uh and then the in nepal they have shoot on site policies um but even there you know there are human rights violations because uh there are abuses where there is ultimate power um without a check and balance and um you know is that the right approach at the end of the day we're because personally, I think we should be trying to remove um, the weapons from the situation and our end goal by working further in the communities so that we're not hitting these violent contacts. We, sh- we, we really shouldn't be hitting these violent contacts. Yeah, I mean, but don't you think there'd be a lot of less poaching if all the parks were shoot on site? I mean, I think it would make people maybe stop to think like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, it, it is true. That definitely is true for the area's um where that is you know botswana was a shoot on site for a while okay. for many years um kazaranga um te- technically some some ways how you view the kenyan law technically depends on the situation um but it's a little looser but yeah it, it would be better but you know like i'm i'm thinking not even in like the realm of five to ten years i'm thinking like 20 30 years you know uh some of the most actual Uh, some of the best units I know in the field, they have such good community relations with the entire, you know, population of people around the national park. They don't carry weapons. And so when a, when a poacher does show up with a weapon, the police show up and they catch that person off guard. So there's not this like giant exchange of, you know, excitement because they got caught in the act. Um, I still do think rangers should carry weapons and i as of now definitely they need to be armed and they need to be active and trained um but i you know i hope in the future that conservation doesn't equal so much life lost yeah just all of your dedication so i okay so you start the global uh the global conservation force and can we talk a little bit about that yeah so originally when i started global conservation force i wanted to be a ranger, have the ground experience, and have worked in the literally the biggest middle of the rhino poaching war that there was. And I did that, and I had all the previous experience. Before I came back, I contacted my friends and said, okay, 
let's I really want to start this now and I have a lot of good friends in different backgrounds and I said let's just get it going I know the paperwork's gonna take forever so I started the paperwork before I got back and then really started getting the paperwork done when I came came back after several months and got it all filed got it all finished went was back in the field came back to San Diego and then I want to say it was like uh, somewhere in early mid 2015 we got the formal paperwork back federal status 501c3 nonprofit and uh, the goal was what I realized is you know again coming back to the rhinos being the umbrella protection species mm. what I realized was is every region has a specific threat and it, it really ties around a type of poacher and a type of poaching and if you can address with a multifocal approach what the regional pressures are you can restabilize those communities and those entire habitats. Mm-hmm. So as an example, uh, rhino poaching, that's very highly sophisticated transnational organized crime that puts money in the pockets of criminals in regional areas who are specialists in different kinds of crimes, and then they become more advanced, and it's a lot like the drug war. Mm-hmm. You get these cartels. And so people's lives get abused, and people get coerced, and it corrupts the system, and, and a lot of people start to suffer at the end of the day, including the animals themselves that start to decline and it becomes this huge thing. Mm-hmm. But bushmeat poaching is not the same. So bushmeat poaching on the lower tier, if you can provide education and English classes and people can get more jobs in ecotourism and they can support their families, they're not going to go poach the bushmeat. And if there's community wellness centers and all these other things that come into play, you can change the tide and become, you can change that help uh, mentor that community so they become wildlife guardians and see the value of the wildlife instead of despise it. And so from the top tier to the bottom tier type, there's all these different regional pressures. So pangolin is around, you know, transnational demand again, trafficking. It's a nonviolent poaching system. Um, a lot of education in the countries where they're taken and a lot of education in the countries where they're coming from and a lot of change in laws and awareness need to happen. Because that's a lesser species. It's not as sexy and known as the rhino. However, pangolin and rhino habitats overlap each other almost everywhere, or they used to. So if you're protecting pangolin habitat with the rhino scale ranger, then you're protecting pangolins. But if you're working on pangolin basic based projects at the same time, you're you're approaching both levels of issues in that same habitat and in the same demand market and the same transnational traffickers. So we have rhino, elephant, giraffe, pangolin, African painted dogs, saiga antelope, and snow leopards as our key species and habitat zones. And the reason is, is they all tie into a type of poaching and they all tie into a type of either wildlife demand or law issue or you know regional pressure. Um, so GCF is quite busy because we what i say is we use this multifocal approach in every specific zone yeah i was gonna so there i know there's listeners right now who were like oh my gosh how do i get involved like what if i wanted to work on a anti-poaching unit or i wanted to become a ranger or i want to work for this organization can you give us any tips yeah so one of the biggest things like we were talking about in the beginning is how do you get started right yeah well what I've been working on for years is a safe way to create professional development programs so that you're not just going and 
volunteering and it's it's meaningless you're actually going and you're you're skill building and you're actually being trained um so we have a canines uh canines conservation program hmm. so it's our canine professional development program so you learn um how to train working canines in conservation and you actually work with the gcf canines and you train alongside uh the trainers and then you get to see how they're they work and mm-hmm. you get real life experience you're gonna be in the bush the whole nine um we have we're going to be announcing our mounted unit uh, professional development program. Same thing. Uh, I should say similar thing, um, except you're focused on horse training, horse care, um, horse management, and then working alongside the mounted unit-based operations. And then we, for the first time this year, uh, opened up spots so that you can join a ranger intake. Um, but we only allow uh, between four and six international candidates that are not from the local region that we're training in. Okay. Um, and the reason is, is we train, we, we trained local Rangers so that we can provide local jobs and local stability for the entire system. That way there's buy-in, but there are always going to be people that want to train. And like, this is not easy training and it's, you know, full military style and our instructors are hardcore and I do sit in on these courses and as an instructor as well, but you will have the opportunity to get that training. Um, it's very competitive and there is a waiting list and there's an application process. Um, but they're all things that people can do. And if those routes are too extreme, um, we always need help stateside with anything that a business and event or educational outreach thing needs, you know, like somebody make designing a poster, someone Mm. writing a press release, uh, someone, making the connection with, you know, this company. Uh, there are a lot of ways you can volunteer and help us out. There there really isn't a way you can't help. Yeah, um, I, I really want to try to figure out a way to mention something like this on the Today Show or figure out some type of a story because this is just, yeah, I just, I am so impressed with you, your work, and this organization. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. We've worked hard to create, you know, this special approach yeah but i like how you're just you're not just talk you know like you're not just sitting in your fancy home in california or just walking rhinos and like oh people need to stop i mean you know stop poaching and this and that like you literally went on the front line and risked your life to save these animals and i just really really respect that thank you yeah i definitely didn't want to be that i i've always wanted to you know i guess live it for myself so i could represent those who are stuck in it while I have the privilege to be able to walk away and and share and bring more attention to it. So my, I guess we're nearing almost an hour of the interview. I know we're going to be wrapping stuff up. Is there still hope for the remaining rhinos? What what do we have? Five or six species? We have five species and and then there's the subspecies uh, of the populations. And yes, there is still hope. And I think the most important thing is progress is is hard to weigh in conservation because there's so many ups and downs and turnovers but at the end of the day the fact that at people now at events when we first started talking about pangolins <laughs> back in 2014 and you know this is when we're waiting for the nonprofit status and we're still doing all this stuff People are like, penguins? What about penguins? And, <laughs> we love but penguins. Now, yeah, I love penguins. They're so cute. And now when I get at events, because we have the posters and we have you know stuff uh, like stuffed animal 
uh, pangolins, people will come up and tell me about a pangolin. And I see that as a huge success. Yep. They become common knowledge. And if we can continue to keep these animals in the spotlight and activate people to donate and participate in conservation, we still have a chance. And we are seeing successes. Uh, we are seeing successes in a lot of places. There are more traffickers getting arrested. There are more poachers getting arrested. Mm -hmm. There are more rangers getting trained. Um, there are less rhinos dying in certain areas and certain habitats. We are confiscating more wildlife products. More rules have been put in place since we started in the United States specifically and in the UK and Europe um, that prohibit the sale of these wildlife products that are hindering the business operations of these kingpins. Um, there, there are so many successes it's hard to share them all, but at the end of the day, as long as we can keep people activated in conservation, there's still hope. And, and I hold on to that a lot because there are some dark days and there's dark news every week that we see. And, you know, sometimes it's just as you know, simple as someone telling me about a pangolin at an event or they're just talking to me about, hey, I heard about this project and they actually read something. And so there is still hope. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think this is where social media is great because you have people who you know who are I mean for instance Lauren has a huge presence on TikTok. She's almost at 200,000 followers and all she does is Oh like, my gosh. <laughs> she's great, but she talks about pangolins and it's like that's amazing. Thank you. Like there's people even this podcast, people listen to it all around the world and it's just it's awesome. I think every little bit helps, you know? I mean truly though, I think it's great. It does. Every every little bit helps. And and what's really cool is there are a lot of people now who are really taking the right approach. Like, you know, the fact that you took the time to even create a talk show, you know, yeah, it, it gives a voice to a lot of people who maybe not wouldn't actually be out talking. And, um, you know, I greatly appreciate it because I'm so buried in stuff a lot that I don't really pick my head up a lot to <laughs> look at the rest of the world. Yeah, well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I uh, oh, can I ask you something that's going to be super controversial, and I can't believe I'm. I just I have to ask you this. Are Do you it. ready? Are you sure? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So what were you, and you know more about this, but so one of our most listened to episodes back in the day, I think it was last year, year and a half ago, I had a trophy hunting discussion with my friends from the all creatures podcast chris and angie and some t our roundtable discussions are the most some of the most listened to shows and there was an instance where i and you probably know more about this but from my memory was it a black rhino that they auctioned off to Corey cory knowlton yep oh god okay can we go into that what are your thoughts on this i wanted to talk to an to an expert in this field and you are the person i want to get your thoughts on this you know, this is this is one of those topics that has to be discussed, right? Um, yeah. There's a power vacuum in conservation, and this is what me and a lot of others describe it as. The necessity for hunting wouldn't be there if conservation was well-funded. And the fact that hunters are buying these animals is because there's a deficit for support or the design of the infrastructure that supports the reserve. So ecotourism, the, the reason the COVID situation has really hurt a lot of our conservation projects and the design of our projects is me and you, let's say you're the lodge owner of this reserve and we're GCF. And I say, Hey, you have a ranger team. 
we're going to provide sponsored training and we're going to give a salary stipend and we're going to keep your rangers equipped and, and trained at a maximum maximum mm-hmm. level and we're going to provide a vehicle budget and you go great because this cost burden would come out of your own pocket if it wasn't for me but your side of the token is you're going to take a percentage of every bed night booked and you're going to use it for a salary for your rangers and a conservation fund mm-hmm. now a lot of places already have that and that's ecotourism Hunting is the other side of that. Hunting goes in the pure dynamics of the structure of the circle of life. There really isn't a true wild anymore. So what happens is in these managed reserves, let's say there's a black rhino bull, like the one Corey Knowlton shot, and he's overrepresented in the population. And they are saying, okay, we can, we can, auction him and maybe get $350,000 for him. Or he's going to end up killing one of our young up-and-coming bulls and one of the the rangers is going to have to dispatch him for being a dangerous animal. And so there are the hunting side, which I am not a part of. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't don't have an issue with subsistence-based hunting because I understand people's need for the resources, especially in the rural parts of the world. Mm-hmm. However, trophy hunting, coming from myself as a competition shooter, you are not a great shot for shooting these animals. You are not a skilled marksman, and you're not even a skilled bushman because you're not out there hoofing it for weeks, picking up rhino spore and track, and you're not going to be following them for days and then shooting it and then leaving. No, you're getting driven there. You're handed a high-power rifle with a scope on it. There's a guy next to you, so if you screw up, he shoots too. And then it's it's carved and cut for you, and it's, you know, sure, maybe they feed it to the lodge staff or the local community. That doesn't benefit those people, and that money doesn't trickle out into conservation as much as everybody says it does. Because at the end of the day, that $350,000 goes back into the private hands and management of that reserve, and it's like a shareholder's pro- policy. So, yes, it funds the anti-poaching unit that's on that hunting reserve, and yes, it does this and that, but that's all a symptom of a power vacuum because funding wasn't established or there for the other wing, which is what we represent. Um, and I don't, I try not to get too involved in the pros and cons of it because it is a complicated situation because there are places that purely wouldn't exist without the hunting lodges, and there are places in populations with these endangered species that just wouldn't exist because they they go after the animal that has already bred, it's old, and it might have a very short life I, be- afterwards. I just feel like there's, there, but there's something that's not ethical about killing something that's so endangered. I mean, that's what... I totally agree. Like, I what? totally agree. It, it's, it's a hard... It's, it's super hard because, you know, you have everybody crying... To hey, we gotta save these things, and I, you know, I'm part of that group. Like we gotta save these things, and then they're like, "Yep, well, we gotta shoot one to save one." And you're like, and the logic behind that, because I mean, it's there was a several years ago we we sponsored seven seven rhinos to move from a reserve in South Africa, and it was because the reserve owner was, I guess, self aware, and he goes, "I can't pay for anti poaching." These rhinos' lives are at risk, and I don't want someone to shoot them. So 
our cell, uh, GCF, and another nonprofit called OSCAP, um, Outraged Citizens of South Africa Against Poaching, um, we put the money forward to move these seven rhinos to a reserve that could handle, um, you know, taking care of them and protecting them because it is it, wildlife protection is very expensive salaries, vehicles, vehicle budgets, fence lines, mm -hmm. all the stuff. But what was interesting was there was a hunting group that was trying to levy in there at the same time to bribe over, oh well, we'll pay you three God. to five times as much for those same animals if you just, you know, we'll buy them from you. And it was like one of those things where it's like, guys, we're there. Th at that time, it, that was 2015, and the death toll hit the spike, you know, the highest. And you're like, there are the most on-record rhinos getting killed this year, and you're talking about saving them by shooting them. And uh, no, like we, that, no, that's, and it's, there's an argument in there too with elephants. You'll hear uh, some groups saying, there's not an, there, there are too many elephants. Okay. There are either too many elephants, which is true for some reserves because they are taxing on the environment if there's too many in a small space which has happened with some zones because they've been shrunk down or is it there are too many elephants or we have taken up too much of their space and we don't have enough space to allocate to them. And that's our fault. And that's our responsibility. Not there are too many elephants. We need to shoot them. It's, you know, it's what side of it do you look at? And, you know, that's used in culling and stuff. You know, there, there are a couple groups that we work with that have actually moved a couple dozen and even more, elephants from areas that had too many elephants to areas that don't have elephants anymore because they got wiped out from poaching five ten years ago and now they're re they're brand new populations and they're flourishing wow so you know imagine if those were auctioned off and shot that would go back to one reserve a handful of pockets change a handful of lives instead of rebounding an entire population so it does come up and you know the conversations do get heated um and i I simply defuse it by saying, well, we're not here to shoot the animals. We're here to change. We're here to protect the animals and this is how we're going to do it. And, um, it is because though at the end of the day, as many people care about conservation, there are still more people. There's still a lot of people that would pay a high dollar to shoot an animal because they think it makes them the great white hunter, the, the big macho dude, which by sport standard and by, survival standard you're sorry you're not in that category doesn't work yeah i agree i agree well mike thank you so much i know we went a little bit over but i really really enjoyed this interview and you just gave so much valuable information to my audience and just great insight and you are a true wildlife warrior a true conservationist so thank you for all you do yeah thank you for having me and thank you for talking with me today Absolutely. And I will put a link because I'm sure that if listeners want to make donations or support the Global Conservation Force, uh, I'm sure they could donate on your website. Yeah, you can find us um, at our website, globalconservationforce.org. Okay. You can find us on Instagram and uh, Facebook. And if you guys are interested in chatting with me more, I'm at Mike Veal, uh, V as in Victor, E-A-L-E -E, on Instagram and Facebook. Awesome. Thank you so much, man. I hope to have you on in the future. Yeah, I'd be happy to chat more. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and family. 
Also, if you haven't already, hit the subscribe button. It really helps me out. As always, if you have any guest suggestions, if you want to email me personally, head on over to CorbinMaxi.com. And if you haven't already, check out our social channels. You can follow me at CorbinMaxi on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll talk to you next time.